Welcome to The Coolest Show, everyone. Our guests today are strategists, tacticians, and leaders you ought to know. I'm obviously not Revan Yearwood. I'm Tamara Tolzo Laughlin, and this is The Coolest Show. This is The Coolest Show, brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. It's the coolest show, you know, keep the culture connected. It's the coolest show, you know, in your ear, yeah, respect the expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Cream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your off. Coolest, coolest show, you know, the hip hop call. The Inflation Reduction Act is in the process of moving through the House. After passage in the U.S. Senate, Kamala Harris tied the knot and broke the 50-50 split along party lines. Our conversation today is not about the history that's being made, although only time will tell exactly what that is. Who is cast as the victor, who's the victim, and what will the impact be? Today on The Coolest Show, I'm sitting in for our Reverend Lennox Yearwood. I have the pleasure of digging in with three incredible guests who have been and will continue to be people who shaped the impact of the U.S. climate, the first climate bill. Regardless of what we have to say about it, we're going to have to deal with it. So really excited to get into a conversation with Bishop Marcia Dinkins, Dana Johnson, and Rihanna Gunwright. Bishop Jenkins is the executive director of Black Women Rising. She launched Black, the Black Abolition Coalition in 2021, as an initiative to ensure that accurate and inclusive accounts of Black experiences in Appalachia are not erased. Additionally, Bishop Jenkins serves as a part-time executive director for Ohioans for Sustainable Change. She brings a wealth of knowledge to this work with an impressive background in community organizing. She holds accreditations from everyone, a lot of folks, uh, focused on interdisciplinary and women and gender studies, criminal justice, and policy. So all those things that are those nexus points that we're dealing with in this moment. Uh, She's also, as if she has time, uh, currently a candidate at Union Institute University and as a PhD candidate and is focused on public policy and social change. Dana Johnson serves as the strategy director and federal policy leader at We Act for Environmental Justice. She leads advocacy, regulatory, and the policy setting team. So all the stuff that we're about to talk about. She has successfully helped shape the organization's narrative in the areas of clean air, healthy homes, water quality, energy democracy, and transportation standards. She's a sought-after leader who has moderated every kind of conversation from the New York Bar Association to Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She serves on numerous boards, including the Advisory Council of State and Energy and Impact at NYU School of Law. Rihanna Guns-Wright hardly needs an introduction. She's the Director of Climate Policy at the Roosevelt Institute. She leads the think tank's research at the intersection of climate policy, public investment, racial equity, and public power. Again, we are in the right conversation. She aims to create a body of work that examines the role of economic policy and large-scale economic transformation to make sure that the climate crisis doesn't happen without us. She supports Roosevelt's engagement with the Green New Deal Network and many other partners who are in the thick of the climate movement. So we're going to get into a deep conversation. Everybody grab a glass of water, call a friend, put on a thick blanket, because we're not going to spend a lot of time at a superficial level. I have begun to introduce each of you to the listening audience, but let's jump in. In your own words, please tell us what is your role in this movement moment? And I'll ask Dana to kick us off. Sure. Thank you, Tamara, for this opportunity to be with everyone today. Um, I consider our movement moment, we act for environmental justice broadly to be really making the federal connection to what we see um, happening at the state and local level. Um, I see our role as carrying the, the message, quite frankly, and the water for um, frontline groups in a federal space um, and doing all that we can as an organization and me as an individual to be sure that our our interests are represented as best as possible in policymaking, deciding what administrative action to take, and quite frankly, being sure that uh, those who don't represent environmental justice in their daily work uphold environmental justice 
principles to the extent that I can when they're sitting in spaces talking for us. Rihanna, do you want to jump in on that question? What's your role in this movement moment? Yeah. So I think of my role as twofold. The first role that I'm trying to play is um, really thinking through how the transition to clean energy is structured and how we can structure it in a way that makes sure that frontline communities and the same communities that are often used to ensure that like a transition happens, the transition happens on their backs, that that's not the case this time. Um, and that the transition is, is happening in ways that actually enhance public power are more sort of small D democratic, um, because people think that I think often we think of like an energy transition as just switching sources of energy, but it's an economic transition. Um, and so thinking about how does that need to be structured so that our economy is actually more just and more democratic and more inclusive um, than the one that we have now. And then I think my second role is really helping to organize other sort of think tanks um, folks and policy experts um, so that we are aware of and hopefully marching in line in terms of strategy with advocates, especially um, folks on the front lines, because traditionally we just, we don't often talk. Um, so trying to organize the policy space um, so that we're not like off saying one thing and doing one thing that ends up not being helpful uh, because we don't know actually what's going on or what people need. That's powerful. I'm going to ask you, Bishop Dinkins, can you tell us a little bit about your role in this movement moment? And then I'm going to ask you a follow-up question because I think they're connected. So what's your role in this movement moment, Bishop? Um, like Rihanna, I think I see, I see my role is multi-layered, multifaceted. Um, number one, um, it's about education. You know, she said this is an economic transition. So I see, you know, part of my role is, is bringing together the communities who are consistently divested from environmentally and economically in the Appalachian regions, more importantly, and specifically black individuals in their stories. Um, because what continues to happen is because those voices are not there, those stories are not heard and we are invisibilized and or erased, especially as black women, um, that our stories aren't told. So there's also always this, um, historic divestment um, when it comes to economics and um, equity. And so part of that is, is making sure that we have a, our voices are heard so that we can have a reallocation of funds and ensuring that these funds are coming to our communities and meeting us where we are. The other part of this that I see um, as a dire need is, is um, as a faith person, as a person of faith, we're going to have to put in faith voices. It's, it's this, this level of holding, you know, faith institutions accountable for education, advocacy and awareness, but also building, you know, to a point where the black church especially is involved because who's sitting here um, and impact who's sitting on the pews impacted. They are who are the ones who's losing. They are whose family stories are they hearing because of, um, a lack of access to health care or they're, they're get, putting food pantries in the black church. You know, um, and, and while I'm speaking to a segment of people in the Appalachian region, the white experience and the black experience, they do kind of connect. And so it's also helping people to see where we meet, you know, so that we can have this multi-layered people centered uh, movement that's making sure that, you know, resources are allocated, stories are being told accurately and we are building sufficiently so we can move to sustainability in our communities. Wow. So indeed, you're all handling a lot and holding space for many other people. The media narrative around the Inflation Reduction Act, which is the context we're in, varies really greatly. But what we know now is that it's a compromise bill between Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senator Joe Manchin. It also represents a record release of funds for decarbonization, electrification, energy efficiency, research and development vehicle transportation, and forests, among other things. We talk a lot about all those issues on this podcast. Bishop Dinkins, I really am curious about the people you spoke about, the geography, the identity, the why location matters. Can you kick us off by talking about who 
is your community so that our listening audience knows? And then I'd like to ask the other guests the same. Who is your community and how is that community receiving the news of the Senate passage of the Inflation Reduction Act? So, you know, I'm going to say my community is black women. My community is, you know, people who live in Appalachia who either identify as black or are having trouble identifying as black because of the historic harm that they've been, you know, impacted by. And it's also clergy, Um, you know, and and all of these identities, you know, fit together. And so how is it impacting us? Um, When you think about, you know, the, the, the IRA, you know, part of the problem is it's still this, this part of divestment. It's still this part of harm because they don't look at the Appalachian region. Let's, let's be real about it. They have white America, black America, rural America. And so they, they've not figured out how to connect these Americas so that they simultaneously work together for economic impact um, and, and, and equity. Um, and so, you know, it's impacting us because you're still left out. What's going to happen is, and especially in the Appalachian region, there's all this, you know, the land use for fracking. There's the extraction, you know, of resources. And because of the narrative that's attached to it, what's going to happen is you're still going to see people in these communities harmed. They're not going to be able to have this just transition to clean energy like it's it's being talked about. You know, it's always this 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 discourse with black people or people in the Appalachian regions moving over to clean energy or renewable energy because they haven't figured out how to do it. And so, you know, the story is I, I just say it's like this as always. They're left out. We're left out. You know, and, and that's the story and that's the discourse and that's the problem, because at the end of the day, it's still going to be for those who benefit the most. And that's the fossil fuel industry. And so that's how it's impacting us, because it's still putting people at a point where they have to make choice, but they're not educated around the choices that they have to make. And so it continues to perpetuate the harm. Dana, can you tell us who is your community and how is that community receiving the news of the passage of the the Senate passage, we're, we're, we're holding our breath on the rest of it, uh, of the Inflation Reduction right. Act. Yes. So at WE Act, our mission is to ensure that people living in a community of color, so predominantly African-American, predominantly um, Latinx community, um, and people of low income um, participate in decision-making processes. So I would say broadly, those are our communities. Um, I would also add to that, WE Act is the only environmental justice organization with a permanent office in Washington, D.C. And so I will also say that other justice, other advocacy, other environmental justice organizations across the nation are also our audience. And I would say we are on a spectrum in our reaction to this bill. So I would, my team and I spent the last 18 months going hard in the paint to ensure that investments were made in areas that we believed would benefit our community. And so I feel a sense of pride that we were able individually and collectively to make sure that those investments um, are represented in this bill and we do see them. Um, There's a a $60 billion number on it. I'm going to say it's probably closer to 40 because there are some investments, as Bishop Dinkins mentioned, that may reduce emissions but have technologies that are harmful. Rihanna's shaking her head. She knows those numbers are... She, she's feeling the, the difference between those numbers. Go on. Right. And, and, it, and it may not even be in the 40s. Right. But let's just say at the very high level, we're going we're gonna to say 40 something. But I will say to you, Sunday night, when the Senate passed the bill, I did not feel excited. I felt a little sad, quite frankly, because there are people who I stand in partnership with and allyship with, who have been fighting line five in the mid Midwest part of this country, 
or people who are, as Bishop Dinkins mentioned, in the Appalachia who have been fighting um, the Mountain Valley Pipeline, my beloved Dr. Wright in New Orleans and the work that they do to push back on carbon capture and sequestration in New York. Our state is bidding for a hydrogen hub that is going to bring some questionable technologies to the community. And so um, I think that that spectrum of emotion I felt is representative of the spectrum of emotion that we see in the environmental justice community, you know, even today. So I'm hearing you say that it's a mixed review at best (laughs) Uh, so far from you and Bishop Dinkins that there are, there's a lot to be desired. Rihanna, can you talk to us about the community of folks in policy that you're organizing? How did they receive the news? Yeah. So honestly, there was, so the communities that I, I feel like I'm a part of, like you said, uh, policy folks, especially climate policy folks, also like sort of progressive econ policy folks. Um, uh, and Green New Dealers. You must you must enjoy money when you call it econ. I just want to flag for everybody that you got to have an intimacy with the economy to cut it short. Most people feel like it's a neighbor that they see on occasion, but I just want to just lift that up. Oh, no. <laughs> That's a, a squatter in my house. <laughs> it's a squatter in my house. It's always here. Um, so, um, so it's really been... Um, a mixed bag, like uh, Dana said, having worked on the Green New Deal, I guess when I thought of the first like big piece of climate legislation we passed, I did not expect to feel the way that I did. I also felt sad for all the reasons that um, Dana said. And within the community, there was a real split, right? There were um, policy experts who really because of how closely they might work with frontline communities um, or, you know, the sort of types of things that they research, they were really concerned about the harms, like really intimately thinking about uh, the people and the communities that, you know, stand to be negatively impacted by the bill. And then there were a lot of folks who were celebratory, right? And just very focused on um, the fact that the Senate had done something, right? Because truly, this is the first real piece of climate legislation that is focused on climate in this way that's ever passed. And, you know, there's people who've been working on it for decades. And so there were a lot of people who were just celebratory um, and very excited. And I do actually think um, it's going to be a really difficult and interesting journey ahead because there were some harms done, I think, in the reception of the bill among some policy experts, um, because, you know, one note celebration in the face of harm is, is hard to take and is hard, I think, for a lot of folks, um, especially I'll say like policy folks of color like me to not feel erased, right? And to not feel like our communities and our concerns were um, not heard. So it's, it's an interesting moment. And it's also, I don't know how you all feel. I feel like I'm also part of a community here in Chicago. Um, and a lot of my community here in Chicago (laughs) did know, right. It's this big part of my life and they didn't know. And then when we talked, you know, I remember I had a friend who I was like, you know, I feel weird about this. She was like, yeah, uh, it sounds racist, but will it save the trees? <laughs> and I was like, I, I, um, right. I don't. <laughs> I don't know how to save no trees. I can, I can, I can <laughs> that quick, fast. And she was like, it's a little, I mean, it's bad, but not, I was like, I don't know. So it's been, it's interesting because I do feel like 
uh, on a broader scale, like outside of these policy focused communities, uh, I feel like a lot of people really don't know Mm. um, about the bill or what's in the bill or the trade-offs. Wow. That's incredible. And, and, you know, as of this moment, (laughs) we're in the middle of this conversation in the middle of this moment becoming real. Um, I'm going to ask all three of you uh, to talk a little bit more about the media narrative, because that's another narrative happening in parallel to what we're experiencing, to what community is experiencing, to what different sectors of policy and climate and environment and activism are experiencing. The media narrative around the Inflation Reduction Act has varied greatly. What we know for sure is that the compromise that the bill is happened because of Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senator Joe Manchin. It also represents a record release of funds for decarbonization, electrification, energy efficiency, research and development, vehicle transport, and forests, among many other things. So I'm going to ask each of you, and we'll, we'll start with uh, Bishop Dinkins, what's the controversy? I think you all touched on it a little bit, that in your own response to the bill, there was mixed feelings. And when you thought about your partners, there's mixed feelings. Is that where the controversy is? And can you tell the folks who are listening, who, as Rihanna pointed out, might not even know what the big deal is? Can can racism save any trees? Like what? Like to the people who need to know if racist bills can save trees, uh, uh, please give us a sense of of what you think the controversy is and what people in this audience need to know about it. So from just the spaces that I've been in, the big controversy is, number one, you know, those of us who have been on the front lines and and, and organizing and engaging our communities around, you know, climate, um, the climate crisis, you know, um, the environmental impacts. It feels like this is just the beginning. You know, the the narrative is making it like it's this monumentous thing that's going to be like the the, the be all, save all. And, And that this is a stop. This is just a start. And the truth is, You know, a lot of people are, um, as you said, having these mixed emotions because, number one, you know, part of the controversy is in the narrative is can they really live up to it? You know, number two, how is it going to be implemented and done? Number three, you know, as was said earlier, who's going to be the benefactor? The other part of the discourse and the controversy is, is it going to go to the blue states or is this just going to be like anything else going to the red states? Then there's this thing around healthcare, you know, and and the and the caps around, you know, Medicare and and the ACA, and and while I know that those are good things that I've pushed and fought over the years and and worked, you know, towards those things, is it really going to give us the access that we need, you know? And and lastly, I, I agree with Rihanna. The other part of the discourse is, do people really know? And number two, do they really care? Because they're tired. People are tired, and so. This is not a, an, 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 an instant, you know, and so I think the other part of this is media is making it like it's going to be right here, right now. And the truth is, it isn't. It's not going to save something right here and right now. It's just going to start a trajectory. And so there's all of these mixed feelings around the benefactor. Who's going to lose? Who's going to win? Is it going to go to the red states? Is this going to eliminate blue states? How does this impact, you know, states where they're not even allocating certain things? Um, how does this play into, um, you know, the, the, the reallocation of resources? And can the IRS handle this stuff? And, you know, and then what does it do for every step that we've taken? Because it feels like you have, it feels like a compromise that, yes, we're celebrating on one end a start, but then on the, you know, underneath the structure of it all, you've got these fossil fuel deals that's going to harm places like Alaska and, 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 and Mexico and create all of these other harms. So it feels like for some people, like a fork tongue type piece of um, legislation, you know, and, and the discourse around it and the fact that, again, um, people don't know. And so that's going to be another controversy of like, how do you get them to know? How do you get them to understand and when you have been <laughs> the, the butt of degenerative policy making, how do you get this to matter to people? Wow. Uh, I'm going to ask you, what do you mean by the butt of the policy making? I just want to make sure people don't miss the, the thing <laughs> that you just said that was like lightning there. Like, yeah, come, where are you sitting and why does it feel like you're being piled on? Because that's what I'm hearing in, in, in what you're saying here. But yeah. make sure the listeners don't miss it. 
degenerative policy making has just been policies that has always been against black people, poor people. Um, you know, degenerative policy making has always promoted benevolent racism. You know, when you get into communities <laughs> where they're like, um, yeah, we're going to teach people that, you know, the, the Latinx comes or, you know, you know, Hispanic people come and then they want to create these social conditions to make you socially acceptable. And then it's benevolent racism because we want to take the language and the culture and colonize you in such a way that our policies are superimposed upon you. So we're always on the back end of everything. You know, we are never in, in the forefront. We are never thinking, you know, we're never in the forethought um, policy making. If we just call it as it is, is has always put back black people, poor people, um, those who just not who are not like the elite, you know, uh, who are not like the elite, um, always in the background. And so when the policies come, we get the butt of it, you know. So in other words, we get the crap. Thank you for making it plain. Dana, I'm going to ask you on behalf of your community and, and your life experience, what's the controversy? Yeah, so I think there are two controversies here. I think Bishop Dinkins hit on one. Um, it is what do we truly consider to be robust, meaningful, benefit all policies? And because this is a climate bill, I think that some, um, some advocates, some entities get to compartmentalize, right? So they get to pass climate legislation and feel like it's a win. But when you are sitting in a place where the climate crisis is centralized or environmental just injustices exist, then for us, and I, I borrowed this definition from um, Monique Hardin with Deep South Center. When you think about clean energy, when you think about meaningful climate policy, it can't advance a production or use of energy that will harm communities. It can't perpetuate racially disproportionate pollution burdens, and it can't contribute to the climate crises. And so when you look at this policy, we got to look at it through those lenses. And as was noted, communities will feel sacrificed if any of those things are present. And so the second part is the interpersonal relationships that we as um, individuals representing communities of color um, have with those who sit in a in a national space, right? In the in the national green movement, and in that instance, we have a real different definition of what a win is. So, if you are um, a national environmental or green organization, and you've been in the streets since Waxman Markey, you feel like this is the best thing since sliced bread. You got a win. You came through on what the funders gave you money to do. Say it. But if you are are an environmental justice group, you like, wait a minute. I know the devil I've been dancing with for the past 30 plus years. Now you have introduced a new player with some of these um, degrading investments, some of these questionable technologies this permitting reform deal, this American Petroleum Institute permitting reform deal that was made that is at its heart going to undermine democratic processes when it comes to determine, determining the who, what, where, when, and why mm. of what happens in a community of color. Like this ain't a win if you sit in that space. And so if you've been in partnership or allyship with someone who is dancing in the street and they holding up champagne glasses and you trying to figure out how you, you know, organize and respond to, um, quite frankly, an undermining of your power, then, you know, there's some tension there. And I think that is a big controversy to um, to a point uh, I believe was made earlier and that I know you'll get to in the way this was reported, right? Like that nuance is really not being taken into account. Thank you for that. And I'll say, uh, you know, really quickly, that some of the people that have been at, at the uh, rear end of all of these policies were also there in Waxman Markey. 
So, so there's even there are folks who happen to be betwixt and between those polarities who feel all of the things that we're talking about in this conversation. Rihanna, do you want to talk a little bit about um, the controversy as you see it and whether the media is capturing this at all? Yeah, I mean, I can't agree with what Bishop Dinkins and Dana, especially Dana's last points um, about the different how people define wins differently more. That's so much of the controversy. So that's that's one part of the controversy. I think uh, from where I sit, the other part of the controversy um, for us is that a lot of this money goes to some of the same players who have been really structuring and quite frankly, hurting our economy for a while. So obviously there's a a large amount of money that's going to end up in the pockets of fossil fuel industries. Um, There's also um, with the tax credits, um, because there's only direct pay when it comes to renewables for public entities. That means that there's still a large role that Wall Street is playing in deciding where solar and wind projects get built um, and where they, where, um, what projects get built, which all has an impact on communities, right? Because they're going to prioritize profit um, over, you know, the benefit to communities, even of course, though they're, the tech credit is boosted if you serve a disadvantaged community. Um, so that is, so basically who wins and who are going to be the next big players in our economy is another controversy. Um, because there's a real, role, there could be a real role for public ownership, for community ownership, for public options when it comes to the provision of energies, right? There could be a real role for how this money can benefit communities. And so essentially who is going to run and really benefit from the next clean, from this clean energy economy is a big, big question. Um, And then I think a smaller controversy Um, that comes back to how you define wins and the media narrative is that the media narrative right now is really dominated by white people, right? Just really being treated as experts above and beyond people of of color and frontline um, communities. And that's also part of the, the reason that who defines wins is really important because if you have one side that is white and male and who mainstream typically considers experts saying something is a win, you create a narrative where people who are not are saying that it's not a win, who are largely people of color from frontline communities, they get treated as enemies of progress, right? As people who don't understand political reality, right? As people who are um, unrealistic. And that is really hurtful, really hurtful and really detrimental, uh, both to like the sort of future of our movement and just to who, to like our understanding of climate and clean energy, because we know that oftentimes it's the people who are on the front lines who actually do have the clearest idea an understanding of what all of these things mean. So that's another controversy too, just like who is being elevated as an expert, because that also means that these are going to be the people who get invited back in the room next time, right. To help make policy and who get preference. So I think that's something that we're not talking about a lot, but that is like a huge problem right now. I just want folks who are listening to know that if you give four black women in a room who understand what they're saying at every level. It looks like there's an air traffic controller in every corner. There were hands moving in every direction. There were hands going up sideways, circling. There were snaps happening in the background. As Rihanna was pointing out that 
what we're talking about is multiple levels of dysfunction that aren't being covered in the media, which is why we needed to have this conversation. It's not just interpersonal, he said, and she didn't get to say. It's not just organizational or institutional. They got a seat and they did not. It's actually about systemic harm that gets caused by a lack of equity, a lack of diversity, a lack of people in the room who can talk about the problem from every angle, which then stops you from solving it at any angle. So I just really want to thank each of you for lifting that up. Um, At the time of this recording, the House has already begun. They are three hours into the debate on the Senate Amendment for H.R. 5376, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. This bill is poised to pass despite all of that is all that's being said in this moment and on that floor uh, after being bought to the by the majority leader, Steny Hoyer, to the floor. If passage occurs, I just want to ask each of you really quickly, what's happening to the people that you care about? Wow. Yeah. I, I wonder which direction you would go in, because that is a really powerful, loaded question. Um And I think that what happens to the people that I represent is we put our statements out (laughs) that talk about, you know, what's good and bad in it, but we continue to fight. Um, And one thing that we are doing simultaneously um, while we, we focus on this bill is doing all that we can to ensure that this API permitting reform bill does not go anywhere. So I think that um, folks who I represent will continue um, to go down that path. I wish I had something more to say, but that's, that's kind of where I feel. You know what? Something came to me. I got two more things. One thing is we have to um, focus on how this gets implemented because I am willing to bet that agencies and departments within this administration are still trying to figure out what to do with bipartisan infrastructure money and how to develop programs to ensure that that's implemented in the way that it was um, intended. Um, And so that same process will happen with IRA. Um, And I think one other thing that we talk about internally is we really need to start thinking about power and how we empower people at every level of government to really be in the driver's seat of decision-making. And so I do think there is a civic engagement piece to this, like a voter engagement piece that I know we are also thinking about. Bishop Dinkins, I'm going to, I'm going to come back to you and I'm going to ask a really a pointed question because we're amongst family. We're going to do it. Um, As we think a lot about what's coming next, the midterm elections polls show that Dems could add seats to the Senate, but in plenty of other scenarios that are also credible, they could lose control of the House. I'm going to ask a couple of questions, but I'm going to, I'm going to dig right into this one and then I'm going to pivot back to Rihanna for another one. I, I, it dawns on me as Dana points out that, that this question is a tough one, that there's some things that are going to happen next. And I have to ask you, as someone who represents people who are largely invisible in a conversation that affects that that affects them, is the politics of this moment, the passage of this bill, um, something that will even matter immediately? You know, people worried about it on your street, in your community, in your neighborhood, in the places where you go to do your work, or are the folks there just preparing for the worst of times, regardless of who wins or loses? Um, that's that's a oof, that's a question there. Um, because it depends on who you're talking to. There are some people who, um, they will look and, and they, they, we talk about civic engagement and they see this as, as that political lever, this moment as a political lever, um, that can either be broken, um, so that we can move forward or it could be a political lever that will, um, in turn, just continue to promote and perpetuate some of the, some of the harms and the things that we see. Um, and so for the people that, that we serve or the people that we, we are with, it's, it's like some people are saying like we, uh, in Pittsburgh, you know, some of our work is in Pittsburgh and some in a very small community is they're saying for what, you know, we always know how to make a dollar out of 15 cents. And so that's how they treat us. 
that you got to make a dollar out of 15 cents, that you got to make it work. You know, it reminds me. And, and I, you know, you say we're, we're family. So it reminds me of the movie Friday when, when Smokey's mother gave him what a dollar. <laughs> he said, what am I going to do with this? And she said, make it work. You know, so, so they understand that we know how to be creative, you know, and so we're always going to continue to see this lack. So unfortunately, People have gotten to the point of just saying whatever. It doesn't matter, you know, and, and it's, it's not, you know, and we're talking from my son's age, who's 22 uh, to my 16 year old, who's like, this is just a capitalistic system. And I don't even understand why I get up and get out the bed and he doesn't even have a job. But at the end of the day, it is the point of people are tired on different levels. And so I think this is going to look at just where you find yourself situated in this situation. There are those who are just like, hey, I'm done. I, I'm, I, you know, it, it's nothing I can do. And, and it's going to be what it's going to be. There are going to be those who just don't want to hear it, you know, because they don't know, but they don't want to hear it because what, what has it benefited me? And then there are those like myself and, 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 and Dana and yourself and Rihanna who feel like, yep, I'm still invisibilized, even in the policy making, because regardless of the fact, the only thing that we are is a qualitative piece of data. You know, that they consistently want to utilize to uplift and uphold and undergird their, their benevolent racism, their, their, their uh, ways of white normativity and othering, you know, to say, well, we got to think about this. We're not a both and it's an either or. And so because mm. people are tired of being situated in the center as just a data set, they give up and they give out. And so, um, again, that's a loaded question. It just depends on where people are and, and that desire. And, and then to add on to all of this that we just haven't really talked about is the grief, is the trauma that's right. through all of this. And because there's so much grief and so much trauma as a single black mother who has been harmed severely by climate and environment being married and a lack of access to health care and and policy making it's hard because you're asking yourself where do i fit in and so it's this point of even trying to figure out your identity your political identity trying to figure out what the policy is that's not going to hurt and harm you anymore than it already has and then how do i navigate and maneuver in a space that doesn't even have a space for me and so i think this is just kind of how we're going to see people because at the end of the day as much as we push, as much as we fight, you still feel betrayed by social justice. Wow. Uh, it reminds me of um, amongst the criticisms or the demands that have happened as a result of the Senate passage of uh, the Movement for Black Lives uh, in its uh, statement opposing, among other things, said that it refuses to, that Black people refuse to be a constituency for a forgetful democracy. And that's just resonating from, from this conversation is that we have been there again and again for every contest and every conversation, for every time we had to take a deficit in our own community that didn't get calculated or our labor was not calculated. So here we are. What's old is new. Uh, Rihanna, I'm going to ask you and Dana uh, to jump in and then we'll come back to, to, to Bishop Dinkins. What do you want to see happen next? Like we have talked uh, at a really deep level about the moment we're in and the history it leans on. But what do we want to see happen next? And with who? From your perspective. Yeah. So I, I want to see a few things happen. Um, so thinking about the bill itself, I want to see, particularly in the policy space, everyone really throw down around implementation and really, really work to get behind frontline communities, right? Um, and leaders to have them really laying out what kind, what is necessary in implementation. And then I would really love to see policy folks sort of work to amplify that and make that real. Because one of the double-edged swords of the IRA is that it's a reconciliation bill. So it just allocates money. A lot of this money is really ungoverned. There aren't, they don't know what the programs will look like. They don't know the regulations. They don't know the rules. 
And so the upside of that is that there can be a lot of pressure and tussle around that. So you sort of drag the money in the ways that it needs to go. But that takes an enormous amount of work. And for the folks who really need that to go well, they don't often, like Dana said, have a federal presence, right? And so it's really going to take groups that sort of have connections with agencies, know how this goes to really put in that labor so that implementation goes the way that we would want it to go. So I think that's that's the first thing I think about. Um, the second, like Dana said, is really piecing together a real strong opposition to this permitting bill. We're and really... Uh, the MVP. No. So the part of the compromise was that in exchange for mansion support, right, they are going to approve the Mountain Valley pipeline, along with moving actually jurisdiction over matters to a more fr- a friendlier court, which is really wild. Uh, and also a set of permitting deals, changes to the Clean Water Act to, um, right, there's a set of changes and we really have to oppose that. And I think it's really incumbent on folks in policy who are saying, well, the, the permitting reforms could be good for clean energy to really think about what is necessary for the permitting reform. What, how does permitting need to change to be easier for clean energy in ways that don't benefit fossil fuels and don't just sort of really gut the process by like time limiting it. There's lots of ways to solve a problem. It doesn't have to be this one. Um, so that, and then I think the third, I, which is just sort of intra movement is we really have to have a come to Jesus moment where, um, where we have a real conversation about one, the difference between harm and having your feelings hurt. Not always the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and right where we can acknowledge that, like, we all have to have empathy and kindness for one another, but there also does have to be real repair and apology for harms that have been done um, and the ways that some folks who have had more power have used their power in a way that ended up being silencing, right? So I think that out of this for us to move forward, there needs to be a real um, moment and process and lots of conversations about repair and harm and sort of realignment around the, the processes and values of environmental justice that all of us, especially post 2020 and the racial reckoning said we were committed to in the climate movement. Um, How do we actually live that out going forward? So much to unpack there. A wise man once said that if you don't understand what a thing is used for, it's subject to abuse, right? So I think it's really, really powerful to talk about the levels of harm, the idea that uh, you can abuse someone in policy, you can divest from them, you can actually beat them, you can make their lives shorter, and all those things can happen at the same time and need to be addressed together. So really powerful. Dana, I'm going to pivot to you. Uh, This microphone is on fire. Uh, What do you need to see happen next for your community's health? And what is safety and survival in the climate crisis? What does that look like? So I got to put a final point on this civic engagement piece. We need, in the words of Ayanna Van Zandt, to start calling a thing a thing. You brought Ayala Von Zant into this conversation. Well, go ahead. That's the first carry on. Listen, carry on. listen, carry on. beloved. Listen, beloved. We got to get honest up in this piece. We have a Christian nationalist white supremacist movement in this country <laughs> that is seeking to undermine the ideal of democracy and the application of democracy in this country. And I will be the first to admit the value proposition for engaging in the voting process and the political process is not always there for people of color, people of low income, as a black woman, 
this back is not made to be carrying democracy. But we got to be real, y'all. We got to be real. The way this political system is set up today, if you are voting Republican, you are voting to overthrow the American government and undermine democracy. Let's not play games. And so, midterm elections, 2024 elections, 2030 census, we don't have to wait to 2028 to get on this. Let's start building power. If we are going to see meaningful, impactful, holistic, quality, substantive, environmental justice, climate, housing, economic, energy policies passed, we don't have to do it. And we need to have the power to be able to do it. I'm, I mean, we could just close the pod now. I mean, we've, I mean, but we won't, but I, but there, there's so much in the last five or six minutes of discussion that I think people are going to have to rewind it and unpack it again, because we're not just talking about emotional state. We're not just talking about the environment and climate. We're not just talking about the state of the politics. We're not just talking about how it gets resourced and who is seen as leaders. We're actually talking about all of it simultaneously. This is an incredibly potent conversation. Um, I'm going to ask each of you to talk a little bit about, you know, why you were doing this, why you were putting yourself in this conversation when it would be so much easier for apparently so many other folks if we just didn't say anything at all. Uh, and I want to do it in a way that helps people to understand what the big picture is. So I'm going to ask you, Bishop Dinkins, share with us what's your vision of a future where your community does more to survive. What does that feel like? What does it look like? What does it do for everybody else? I'm going to be honest with you. <clears throat> I wrestled with that question. I looked at that question over and over again. Going back to what Dana just said, every moment of our life is just that. It's a moment. I don't even know if we can plan for the future. When you look at the civic engagement process, when you look at it, just take a broad stroke of a pen. It just takes an executive order. It just takes for somebody to say, you know, it, it just takes for some some mapping to just, you know, um, to, to stack the odds against you. What 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 part of that? And I had to ask myself, what part of that? So the question is, what do I want to see? I want to see that we have a future. Wow. I want to see that we have a future. I want I want to see my grandchildren have a, a future where they don't have to fight like I'm fighting, where they don't have to be a load bearing wall wow. like we as black women have had to be load bearing walls. I, I want to see where you hit something, Dana, on head, the Christian nationalist movement. I, I want to see faith leaders without forked tongues and, and I want to see them in a point where they are giving back to their community. I, I want to see where you quit taking my tithe and don't tithe back into the community to help the community be whole. I, I want to see where we have, you know, where you come out and you plant a tree in my community. I, I want to see more babies alive than dead because of maternal mortality. I, I want to see clean water when I turn on the faucet. You know, I, I want to see that I've been able to define with powerful black women such as yourselves what, what equity is for me, not white equity, but black equity. I, I want to see what liquid gold looks like for my children and, and, and what it means. So what does that mean? I, I want to see a future defined by me that looks like me, that looks like us, that looks like equity, that looks like power, that even understands power because we can push for it. But the truth of the matter is we all have a defi different definition of what power is. So I want to see, I want to see a future and I want to see a future that moves us beyond a fight to a place of fulfillment. And I mean, overflow like never before that I don't have to live and define my life from a place of scarcity. I want to, there's so much, but that I have a future with abundance. And, and the truth is, I think for me where I had a hard time and I'll wrap up here is because what's really happening is we're always fighting for the future. But how do 
I want to see where we can fight simultaneously today to get the low hanging fruit that we need so we can eat today and drink today and, 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 and live today and thrive today. That that just builds upon and elevates. A magnificent, a magnificent future where we're all living and breathing. In a way that, again, that's been defined by me. You know, it's hard to answer. I hope I answered as best I could because mm-hmm. I want to see a future where my granddaughters ain't low barren walls. Beautiful. I, this is this is fantastic. Um, I I can say that I have said it in many places that the vision of the future I want to see is one where we are not molested on behalf of the of America. Right. So like, that's a, everything you just said was about being able to have self-determination, making decisions for yourself, being able to choose partnership and allyship and not being pushed into a space where you have to go. Uh, Dana, you're going to have to step out of this conversation. I know any moment. So I just want to ask each of you uh, to tell us how people can connect with you. And what we will do is after that, a circle back to another question. But I want to I want to ask each of you, starting with Dana, to tell us. Uh, as you talk to us about your vision, Dana, tell us how people could contact you, resource it, and support it. Yes. Um, so interestingly or not, um, I started this year thinking about why I do the work that I do. Like, why am I in Washington, D.C.? Um, and I think at the end of the day, my desire is for people to live in peace and safety without fear. And a part of that is self-determination and very much aligned with the 17 principles of environmental justice that were developed by leaders from around this world. And if you look at that document, it mirrors the Declaration of Independence and it speaks for people, you know, wanting to be in a place of, like I said earlier, you, we get to decide the who, what, where, when, and why of our lives. and. With that, to me, comes peace, safety, and power. And so that's my vision for the future. That's why I'm in Washington, D.C. And if anyone wants to get in touch, you can learn about We Act at weact.org, W-E-A-C-T.org. And you can hit me up unless you are the American Petroleum Institute trying to advance a bogus permitting reform bill. Dana at weact.org. Dana at weact.org. Dana, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. And API, you are on notice. Do not send Dana any emails. I'm pretty sure she doesn't want you in the DMs either. Uh, Rihanna, I'm going to pivot to you after I say thank you, Dana, for joining us. It's been powerful. Uh, Rihanna, can you talk to us about the vision of what you want to see? Because we talked a little bit about uh, where there's trouble, what's not working, how what the multiple levels of of what needs to be fixed. But what is the vision of a future where the folks you work with, the people you are lifting up, do more than just survive? Tell us what that looks like. I mean, for me, it honestly looks like us finally reaching a moment where we, as a country, can solve a problem, especially a big problem, without needing to rely on white supremacy to make the math work out, right? Like something that has struck me about this bill is that we were not able to make progress to secure its passage until we, until some folks essentially agreed to throw some group of black, brown, and indigenous people down a well. Right before that, we could not move forward. We could not find a compromise. And for can't me, even release money. Uh, we can't even right. We can't even throw money into the world unless some black Could and brown not, people are threatened by that. Powerful. Just wanted to right. stop there because that was powerful. And so, I for me, a vision of the future. When I think of a future I want to live in, it is that we can figure out and have figured out ways to solve problems without using people of color as a buffer. Right. It is so lazy that in 2022, we cannot figure out how to solve existential crises without it being on the same backs that is always on when there are such 
a wealth of solutions available. It, I, I need a future that looks like that. Cause I feel like that's what really struck me after the passage is I saw so many people talking about, I'm hugging my kids because now I feel better about their future. And I'm looking at my eight month old and having just recovered from a cold that became a respiratory infection because of the asthma that I have, because I grew up in a place with elevated air pollution right? Looking at him and I felt like I could not rejoice that way because I could not promise him or even just like kids like him that they wouldn't be a bargaining chip one day, right? Like that something wouldn't happen at his expense. And so I could not have that same joy. And so I want a future where like, he doesn't have to look at his kids and think that. Right. And so I think that's, that's what it would be like for me, but we just got to figure out how to solve problems differently. It's, it's too, it's absurd that we're still here. Um, yeah. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to ask you both to tell people how people can follow contact and support you. But before we get there, I have one last question for the Bishop. Can you, Talk to our audience about how the community can help you get there. Rihanna talked about a vision. So did you. And so did Dana. But what does that actually look like? Is that people showing up to support you? Is that people mobilizing in the streets? Is it people uh, giving you uh, all the fancy access to the research data that that it might take to help translate the storytelling that people want intermittently when they don't want data? They want storytelling. You know, so like what? What can people show up with in Appalachia that would be useful to getting closer to the vision that you talked about? You know, what we talked about is is really what Rihanna has talked about. What are some of the ways that we can come together and identify a solution? And so after holding a policy summit um, a couple of weeks ago, what we've decided is we need to build out an agenda. So we need people to come out. We need people to share their voices and their stories. We need the community to come out so we can build a pathway to leadership so that we can tell the story from our lived experience and not from that, as as Rihanna mentioned, the white supremacist structure or from this romanticized narrative about Appalachia and rule that continues to um, divest you know, from, from black people we need. And, and truth of the matter is we just don't need black people while black is about black people. We also need the community to come out as a whole. So that means we need white Appalachians to come out. We need and, and let's let's break the let's break these these dividing right. walls because some of these words like exurbs and urban and all of that, we need we need people to come out and the vision is is that we build this fifty state campaign and then some so that we are coming together to learn how to identify solutions. So that means we need researchers who can come help. We need storytellers. We need single mothers. We need people who can bring water, who can bake brownies. You know, we need people who can come and just show up so that we can sit down. We need thought partners. We need, you know, we we need faith leaders. That's how the community can come. The community come as you are. And other ways that we can meet this is that we meet people where they are, because I can make an ask all day long. But when you are pitted against your everyday life, we need the church to come and bring some, give us some meeting spaces. We need folk who can come and, and do some daycare for us so moms can. We need some restaurants who will we'll donate some food so we can feed folk when we're having our meetings. You know, we need the resources to help people meet them where they are so that we can come together and have these conversations to identify the solutions that we need. And that, that's, that's, you know, and, and we need to build this big relationship and that's going to take the community. Well, on that note, I'll thank you both for what has been an incredible and powerful conversation, a broad ranging one that covers so much of the work that I, that I, I ask people to put it in their knapsack and bring it back out again. That way they're ready for the fall. Uh, bishop Dinkins and Rihanna Gunwright, can you both tell us, I'm going to ask the bishop to start, uh, how we can find you? How do we keep up with what you're doing and how can we support you? Bishop. 
Yeah. So um, you can find, you know, you can email me at hello black and that's H E L L O B L A C at black Appalachian coalition.org. Um, you can follow us on our website, black Appalachian coalition. I believe that's dot org. Um, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. You can also go to the website and identify identify ways that you want to join with us. Um, other ways that you can support, you know, we always could use financial supports. We're a new and emerging organization, but we also need people who are willing to share their stories and tell their stories because we have a story map where we are we put those stories there for people to deploy in their communities and to use as resources. Um, we need your voice. So uh, by all means, you know, again, hello, black at blackappalachiancoalition.com, blackappalachiancoalition.org is our website. And you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join our work, join our voice, tell your story. Thank you. And I'll just add for folks that that black is spelled B-L-A-C. So uh, don't forget uh, to leave the K behind. And especially if there's three. Uh, Rihanna, tell us folks how they can get in contact with you, uh, how they can follow your work and how they can get a little brighter every day just by listening to you. <laughs> uh, well, don't catch me on a bad day. This one. Um, so the you can follow our work at Roosevelt Institute. So we are Roosevelt Institute on Twitter. Um, our website is rooseveltinstitute.org. Um, there, the name of our program is climate and economic transformation. So you can click there and read all of our papers, all of our briefs. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at our guns and my DMS are open. That's probably the more ideal way, um, to contact me. And that's about it. Well, thank you all for just making time. It has been a powerful uh, afternoon, morning, or evening, if you listen to this, with Bishop Marcia Dinkins, Dana Johnson, and Rihanna Gunn-Wright. They are the strategists, tacticians, organizers, and leaders. You already know. I'm Tamara Tolzo Laughlin, and this is The Coolest Show. Thank you for your time. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to repeat. It's the coolest show you know. It's the coolest show you know.